I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider the ubiquity of warnings in modern life. There is only one mile that I have to travel between my house and here. And as I traveled it, I did this twice actually this week, because I knew this morning was coming. I counted all the warnings that were directed at me as a driver in one mile from my house to here. About 45. 45 warnings. They're everywhere, if you know to look for them. And I wasn't even counting like stop signs, because that's not a warning, that's a command. (laughs) And it's not just driving, is it, right? They're, They're product warnings. Caution. The contents of this container may be hot. You're probably drinking one right now. Um, uh, you, you think about the warnings on bags. This might suffocate you. Uh, uh, all, all the warnings on products that California tells us that they know may cause cancer. There are warnings on our dashboards. There are warnings in our emails. There are warnings on our phones. Everywhere there are warnings. And of course, often, not always, but often those warnings are a means of getting us to buy something, to protect us from the danger that we're being warned about. It's a little wonder, therefore, that we as modern people are very good at tuning out the warnings. Until that is, the danger is immediate. Most of us actually don't need the warning sign to stay back from the edge of the cliff that if we fall over will lead to our certain death. We just do it naturally. Most of us don't need the doctor to tell us twice about the danger of the tumor that was just found. It's not the immediate dangers that that we have trouble with. It's the long-term risks that we are so bad at evaluating. There have actually been a bunch of studies on this, that, that human beings are particularly bad at evaluating and preparing for long-term risk. I'm looking at you, Burger Week. Right? Or, or that, you know, that, that, that deal? That sounds too good to be true, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure this time it's not. Yeah, we're, we're not very good at evaluating long-term risks when it comes to our health, when it comes to our finances. And if that's the case, how much more when it comes to God and eternity? Because that seems an awful long way off. This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel, a series we've entitled, Who's in Charge Around Here? And as we've seen, the first half of the book of Daniel, up through chapter 6, is, is a book that is delivering a message from God to the nations, in a language they can understand, Aramaic, through his people. And, and I hope if you've been following along, you, you've seen that actually the message is pretty simple. God will judge the pride of the nations. That's kind of the message of the first half of the book. God is in control. God is king. And he's going to judge the pride of the nations. 
And of course, the nations includes us. Now, I think we, we like to think that we're, we're pretty good with uh, evaluating risk, and we're fairly certain that when the time comes, there will be enough time to prepare, to respond to the warning when it, when it comes, and we're finally ready to pay attention to it. But what if the warnings have already come? What if we've been tuning them out? I want to invite you to turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5. If you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, this is found on page 787, 787, Daniel chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to read just the first verse to set the scene. Daniel 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. King Belshazzar, who's that? Well, last week we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar, the king that we've been dealing with as we're moving through the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar got the message. But now we've moved forward in time. There is a new king on the throne. That king knows what happened to his predecessor. But that same king has decided to ignore the warning. Here's the argument of chapter 5, and we're going to walk through it. I'm going to try to show it to you, but here's really the argument, and it stands in contrast to last week, chapter 4. If you ignore God's warning, you won't escape God's judgment. That's, that's the stark argument of this chapter. If, if chapter 4 was that God gives his kingdom to the humble, oh, chapter 5 is that God will judge the proud. If you ignore God's warning, you won't escape God's judgment. The, the chapter kind of breaks out into four scenes, and, and each scene centers around a different character. We're going to walk through those scenes and those characters, and as we do, I want you to consider whether or not God hasn't been sending some warnings into your life and what it would mean to heed the warnings that he has sent. All right, we're going to start first with the arrogance of the king. The arrogance of the king. Picking up again in chapter 5, verse 1. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, wives and concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right, we're going to stop there. Nebuchadnezzar, who we're quite familiar with, we've been hanging out with him for a few chapters in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar has now been dead for at least 23 years. 
We actually know from other sources, and our main source here is the Greek historian Herodotus, we, we know from other, and as well as archaeology, we know from other sources that a man named Nabonidus is actually king. He was fourth, the fourth successor. So we're four kings down the line from Nebuchadnezzar. But the, a lot of those reigns were, were very short, just a, a few years. Well, Nabonidus, Nabonidus was king, but Nabonidus is away campaigning. He's, he's fighting wars elsewhere. And so his son, Belshazzar, is reigning in his absence. He's the crown prince. He's the regent and is properly called king for these several years that Nabonidus is away. The other thing to know about Belshazzar is he's the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, all sorts of stuff is going on. Like, Babylon is not in a nice neighborhood. It still is not in a nice neighborhood. Lots of conflict. And at this point in time, the Persian Empire, the the Medo-Persian Empire, is growing, it's expanding. And the Persian Empire, the Persian armies, are actually at the gates of Babylon. Now, Babylon is a vast city. It is huge. It took, it said, three days for people to get across. Massive city. But, but the armies of Persia are on the edge of the city. Now, that may be why there are so many nobles in the city that particular evening. It could be that as the armies of Persia have spread, that, that nobles have actually made their way to the capital city, the best, the best fortress in the land. That may be why they're there. We don't, we don't know for sure. But here's the thing, Babylon, man, it was an impressive city. It was protected by extraordinary fortifications, massive walls, and it was protected by a river, the Euphrates River. It was very difficult to get into the city because of the walls and the river. Well, okay, so here's the scene. Again, we know from Herodotus, we know all about this particular day. Uh, It is the night of a high religious holiday. So despite the threat outside the city, or maybe because of it, Belshazzar throws a grand feast for all of his nobles. And it's quite the feast, right? The the women are ravishing. The wine is flowing. And it all goes to the head of this young king. He basically pulls a power move there in verse 2. Bring in the vessels from Jerusalem so we can drink from them. As if to say, nobles, there is nothing to fear here. We have defeated other kingdoms. We have defeated their gods. Nothing to worry about. Well, whether that was just braggadocio or whether he was genuinely confident, we, we don't actually know. But it's interesting that the narrator repeats it. Again, in verse 3. So, so we're told, Belshazzar, verse 2, gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. So ancient people weren't stupid. When they repeat things like that, you just as a reader should know they're trying to tell us something. Now, now maybe, as we've seen in the past, it's, it's, it's mocking. Maybe it's uh, 
uh, a kind of mocking tone. But, but I think here, we're, what we're to understand is that the narrator is underlining the sheer arrogance of the king. To add insult to injury, to really make it clear that's what's going on here, the king proceeds to praise, the God, to praise his gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and stone using goblets made of gold that were designed for the worship and praise not of the gods of gold, but of the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. Well, even as the king's arrogance is on display, the narrator is alerting us, I think, to something else. He's alerting us to the king's senselessness, his obtuseness, his folly. That, that repetition of the phrase, taken from the house of God, the temple of Jerusalem, the, the reference to Nebuchadnezzar, these are the very ones that Nebuchadnezzar brought back. All of that is a callback to Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. Flip, flip back there, because this is the way the book opens. Daniel chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, that is to Nebuchadnezzar, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The narrator wants us to immediately think back to chapter 1, verse 2, and be reminded that this this isn't because of Babylon's great power. No, God sent those vessels to Babylon. God sent the people to Babylon. God has been in control all along. Belshazzar may think he's dissing dissing his enemies, past and future. But the narrator is almost foreshadowing here. He wants us to realize right away, God is setting Belshazzar up for a fall. He is playing with fire and doesn't realize it. Friends, there's an irony in idolatry. And that irony reveals the senselessness of our pride, the pride that is on such display in Belshazzar in these opening verses. In in our pride, we reject God. Why do we we reject him? Well, I I think there may be lots of reasons, but but as as we look at the message of the Bible, And as we look at our own hearts, I think we've got to admit that the reason, finally, that we reject God is we don't want to think of ourselves as lesser than God. We are proud. And and we all get it. We all understand intuitively that when it comes to worship, the lesser serves the greater. And so we reject God because we don't want to think of ourselves as lesser than him. The thing is, we are creatures, and we were made to worship. And so inevitably, even if we declare that we are atheists, we will set up idols to worship. And something very ironic happens when we worship idols. All of a sudden, 
the greater, that would be us, is serving the lesser. You you see it there in verse 4. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They're holding the gold in their hands as they praise their God made of gold. Friends, this is the ridiculousness of worshiping anything other than the Lord God, the Lord God who created us. You know, uh, Daniel and the book of Daniel is not the only one to make this point. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before, mocked the ridiculousness of idolatry when he wrote, with whom will you compare God? What likeness will you set up for comparison with him? An idol? Something that a smelter casts and a metal worker plates with gold and makes silver chains for? A poor person contributes wood for a pedestal that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not fall over. The absurdity of it is self-evident. But the idol worshiper in his pride cannot see it because his pride has made him senseless. I don't think much has changed between then and now. Yeah, we no longer fashion our idols into little figurines that we put on a shelf and, and we need to nail down and maybe use chains to keep them from falling over. We don't, we don't do that anymore. Our idols are more abstract. Money, possessions, advanced degrees, jobs, the opinions of others. But here's the thing about about all of those things. Just like gold and silver, those things make excellent servants, but ridiculous gods. We were made in the image of God to worship him. Why why were we made to, to, to worship God and God only? Because he's the only one greater than us. The the only one in the entire universe, in the entire created cosmos, that is greater than human beings who were made in his image. When we trade God for idols, we're actually debasing ourselves. As we, the greater, now serve and worship the lesser. And yet, in our pride, we cannot see it. Paul says of all idolaters in Romans chapter 1, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were deceived. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images of all manner of created things. Friends, what is your pride blinding you to? What is it that you're not able to see? Maybe because in your pride you don't want to see it. Christian, there is a a warning here for us as well. This is not the main point of the chapter. I wondered if I even should talk about it 
but I get so few opportunities to address this particular issue, I'm going to just pause and do so. Um, as, as a believer, you are already someone who's turned away from idols. The narrator, though, I just want to point out, the narrator goes out of his way to note that the king's arrogance finds itself expressing itself particularly under the influence of the wine. Did you see that? He drank the wine in their presence, and under the influence of the wine, he does this outrageous thing. So I want to talk to you a minute, just a minute, about alcohol. Alcohol is a good gift from God. It is a gift from God, and Scripture makes that clear. Scripture says that wine makes the heart glad in Psalm 104. Uh, The the scriptures are constantly using wine as an image, a picture of of how wonderful heaven is going to be. But scripture doesn't only have good things to say about alcohol. Scripture also warns us against drunkenness. Why? Well, because to be inebriated with alcohol is is to find your, your inhibitions being lowered, your judgment being clouded, your mind dulled. I point you to Proverbs chapter 31 or Ephesians chapter 5. So, so here's the thing. We, we live in a world, we were just lamenting the state of the world. I, I don't think I need to I- explain to you. Of course, we live in a world where our hearts need to be gladdened. And yet we live in a world in which sin remains in our hearts. So so God gives a gift in alcohol. It gladdens the human heart. But God gives some other gifts. God gives the gift of inhibition. God gives the gift of good judgment. These are restraining gifts. Where there is much alcohol, there will be much sin because there will not be much judgment. So I just, as your pastor, I, I want to be really clear here that, that, that there's, there's freedom in the Lord. You, you have freedom to enjoy God's gift of alcohol. But you never have the freedom to exercise that gift in a way that it's excluding some of God's other good gifts, like the gift of good judgment or inhibition. If you find those gifts out of balance in your life, I just want to encourage you to come talk to me or to some other wise person in the church. Uh, This is the kind of thing that can sneak up on you, and I don't want that to happen. Uh, If this doesn't apply to you, I am sorry to have wasted your time. But for some of you, I just want you to know there, there is much grace and there's much help in this congregation. And if, if, if that whole conversation is alerting you that something's out of balance in your life, I want to invite you to come talk. Talk to me, talk to one of the elders, talk to a wise friend here in church. All right. We've considered the arrogance of the king. Let's consider second, the ignorance of the wise. We're going to pick it up in verse Five, the ignorance of the wise. At that moment, 
the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain round his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face turned pale and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one the king named Belteshazzar, was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and intelligence and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give you the interpretation. All right, all of a sudden, after this toast to the gods of gold and silver, all of a sudden, a hand appears, and and it writes with its finger on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand where everyone can see it. Belshazzar is terrified. His face turns pale, his knees knock, he soils himself there in verse 6. It's, it's quite literally, all of his pride is immediately turned into shame as he sits there in his own stink. And he calls for the wise men of Babylon, promising that if they can read and interpret it, they will be richly rewarded, clothed in purple, a gold chain around their neck, third highest in the kingdom. Why third? Well, because as I explained earlier, they call him king, but he's actually the king regent. He's second, so he can only give the third place away. They all come in, but they're bewildered. And the king, as we see there in verse 8, is left even more terrified. Now, this is the third time we've seen this. This is the third time that the wise men of Babylon fail to bring understanding and insight. They failed in chapter 2 with Nebuchadnezzar's first dream. They failed in chapter 4 with Nebuchadnezzar's second dream. And now they fail Belshazzar. And this is their job. This is what they get paid to do. And they cannot do it. And I think they stand here as a picture for us a picture of the, the ignorance, the, ultimately the ignorance of worldly wisdom. Whether that wisdom come to us in a, in a religious form or in a secular form. And, and they basically just confront, I think, us as readers with the question, what wisdom are we relying on? And, and is it working? Is the wisdom that you're turning to to make sense of the world, is it making sense of it? Is it making sense of your life? Is it bringing clarity? If not, well, then maybe it's not wisdom. 
I'm, I'm reminded of what I faced just uh, a couple of months ago. I had a, a leaking uh, outdoor faucet. I'm not a plumber, but I have YouTube, right? And so I researched why is my faucet leaking. I watched lots of videos. I did research, and I, I applied the, the wisdom of YouTube to my leaking faucet, and it kept leaking. So I went back to YouTube, and I looked at more videos, and I did more research, and I realized, oh, okay, now I get it. I, I bought the wrong piece. I need to get this other piece. And so I spent another, like, $40 and got this other piece, and I fixed the leaking faucet again and kept leaking. So I went back to YouTube one more time, and I tried it again. I realized, oh, I think... I think I just had the wrong part number, and so I spent another $40 to get another part, and I fixed the leaking faucet, and it kept leaking. So I gave up, right? I finally realized I do not have the wisdom of a plumber, and it's a plumber's wisdom that is needed. And sure enough, a, a, a plumber showed up, and he said, yeah, 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 all those things that, I'm sorry, you can't get your money back for those things, but actually, we're going to have to cut a hole in your wall, and the whole thing has got to be replaced, and stuff that I couldn't do involved blowtorches. And um, <laughs> so, uh, so he did it, and you know what? It doesn't leak anymore. <laughs> I'm so thrilled. Uh, not about all the money I spent not fixing the problem, <laughs> but I'm so thrilled that that faucet isn't dripping, dripping, dripping anymore. Friends, is your life dripping, dripping, dripping? And you keep trying to apply the wisdom that you have to, to stop the drip. And it doesn't work. And so you try again. And it still doesn't work. The dripping of your life continues. And so you try again. And it still doesn't work. At what point do you admit that the wisdom that you have to bring to bear is insufficient to fix your life? the wisdom that you have is not bringing clarity, if it's not addressing the persistent issues that you keep facing, then friends, it's not wisdom. It's folly. It's not light. It's darkness. Jesus said, if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? What will it take for you to turn to a different wisdom? A wisdom that is actually light. Well, in the midst of Belshazzar's situation, in the midst of all the bewilderment and confusion, a, a, a woman shows up in the banquet hall. It's, it's the queen. Your translation probably says the queen, but there's probably a footnote. And, and the footnote is, is actually, I think, correct. It's actually the queen mother. Yes, that's right. Belshazzar's mom walks in. How 
embarrassing, right? I mean, she didn't get invited to the party. She's old. She has an early bedtime. Remember, she's Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, right? So, but, but the hubbub, the outcry is so loud. She, she is roused, and, and, and she comes in. And because she's Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, she remembers. Son, don't, don't worry. There's a man named Daniel. Your father named him Belteshazzar. Belshazzar, Belteshazzar. There's a play on words going there. Belshazzar, may Baal save the king. Belteshazzar, may Baal save his life. There's a man, however, named Belteshazzar, whose name is Daniel. He worked for him. He put him in charge of all the wise men. And she says to him, look, he had the spirit of the gods in him. He was able to solve problems. Call him, she says, verse 12. Call him. He'll give the interpretation. His mom is telling him this in front of all of his friends, in front of all of the nobles, and he's sitting there in his own stink. We're meant to laugh at Belshazzar at this point. We're meant to laugh at the whole scene. We're meant to laugh at the wise men of Babylon being upstaged by an old woman. We're, we're, we're meant to laugh at this mom, at this king, whose mom shows up because he can't figure out what to do. This is literally your mother showing up at your office or your classroom at the precise moment when you've made a real mess of things and you don't know what to do. And she says, son, if you just listen to me, that's what's going on here. Now, again, this is, this is not the main point, but I would be remiss if I didn't just pause and speak to the kids, the, the children in, in the congregation. Children, you may not think that you're very proud. You may not think that you have much reason to be proud because you're just a kid. But there is a kind of pride even in childhood. It, it's the pride that doesn't want to listen to the wisdom of parents. And would that that pride went away in childhood, but no, it carries right on into young adulthood. So young adults, the pride of young adults is that it doesn't want to listen to older adults. It wants to move them aside, to make space for the young people to get on with things, because we know how to program that smart TV. So clearly, we know what to do. This woman, this old woman, had seen a thing or two. She had wisdom to offer. And she knew where wisdom was found. Children, that is true of your parents. They are not always right. And my own kids will take that up with me when we get home. They are not always right. I want to be the first to acknowledge that. But they have wisdom. Wisdom that should be heard. Wisdom that should be heeded. Young adults, older members of the church are not always right. They're not. And yes, it's true. Sometimes times really have changed. 
But they have wisdom. Wisdom that we sorely need. Because they've been there. They've been through it. So right, they, they may not be able to figure out how to program their smart TV. They may not know how to turn off the alarm on their iPhone. But you know, that's just knowledge and technique. Wisdom is gained through experience. And we would all do well to listen to it. Do you have wise people in your life? Parents, older adults, people that you can turn to who can not only offer wisdom but point you to wisdom. If if you don't, if all of your friends, if all of the people that you listen to are your age, then, then I just I want to encourage you to go to work this week changing that. And find some people older and wiser than you that you can invite into your life. Well, the king is so terrified that he is willing, even to his great embarrassment, to take his mom's advice. And that leads, third, to the wisdom of the Spirit. The wisdom of the Spirit. We're going to pick up reading in verse 13. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you, that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation, you will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts and give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription for the king and make the interpretation known to him. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty, greatness, glory, and majesty to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of the greatness he gave him, all people, nations, and languages were terrified and fearful of him. He killed anyone he wanted and kept alive anyone he wanted. He exalted anyone he wanted and humbled anyone he wanted. But when his heart was exalted and his spirit became arrogant, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven away from people. His mind was like an animal's. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until he acknowledged that the Most High God is ruler over human kingdoms and sets anyone he wants over them. But you, his successor, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of the heavens. The vessels from his house were brought to you, and as you and your nobles, wives, and concubines drank wine from them, you praised the gods made of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or understand. But you have not glorified the God who holds your life breath in his hand and who controls the whole course of your life. Therefore, he sent the hand, and this writing was inscribed. All right, Daniel is brought in. And once again, there's this callback to chapter 1, verse 2, as as Belshazzar refers to him as one of the Judean exiles that Nebuchadnezzar brought. In case we had forgotten, 
the, the, the earlier callback, the, the narrator just reminds us yet again. Belshazzar now repeats his mother's report that, that Daniel has the spirit of the gods in him. And he offers to reward him the same way he had offered to reward the others with royal clothing, a gold chain around his neck, and the third highest office in the kingdom. Now remember, I mentioned earlier, when, when the ancients repeat things, it's not because they're stupid and forgot what they wrote a few, a few verses or a few sentences earlier. It's because they're trying to alert us to something. And this repetition of the reward, and it's going to get repeated again at the end of the chapter, the repetition is alerting us to something as readers. As readers, we should be reminded at just this point of another man in a similar situation, and that's Joseph. Now, there have been a lot of things in the first few chapters that I've not taken the time to point out, but I just, because I, I basically couldn't do it every week. So I'm kind of bringing it all together here. Like Daniel, Joseph was someone, was summoned by someone who remembered him and explained to a king that this individual could interpret the dream, could, could explain and solve the riddle that you're facing. I want you to listen to what, um, what Pharaoh says to Joseph in a very similar situation. This is in Genesis chapter 41. Joseph has just explained the dream to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants, and he said to them, can we find anyone like this? A man who has the spirit of the gods in him. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. And he had Joseph ride in his second chariot and servants called out before him, make way. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. The narrator is letting us know that we have a second Joseph standing in front of us in exactly the same kind of situation, doing exactly the same kind of thing with exactly the same kind of reward. But there's a difference when we get to chapter five. Had I talked about this earlier in chapter two or chapter four, the comparison would have been very, very similar. But Joseph told Pharaoh what he should do to avoid judgment. And that's what Daniel did in chapter 4. Here's, here's what needs to happen in order to be rescued from judgment. But now Daniel stands before another king, Belshazzar. Belshazzar is more like the Pharaoh of Exodus who did not know Joseph. And yet the man standing in front of him 
is filled with that same Spirit of God. You see, the Spirit of the gods is actually the Spirit of Elohim. Elohim is the plural of the word El. El means God. But in the Bible, God is always referred to, not in the singular, but in the plural. The pagans are speaking more truly than they know. He is filled with the Spirit of God. And from that Spirit, he has a message for the king, only this time the message is different. Daniel isn't interested in the reward. You see that in verse 17. I don't care. I'm 80. What do I care about your rewards? Give it to somebody who cares about it. He's this old man. He's got no use for such things. But he will interpret the words on the wall. What's the first rule of interpreting anything? You have to put it in context. And that's what Daniel proceeds to do. He puts the words on the wall in context. He reviews the events of the previous chapter, what had happened to his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, and and what it meant. He says there in verse 21 that, that God is ruler over human kingdoms. He places whoever he wants on the throne. And it was only after Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and acknowledged that, that Nebuchadnezzar was restored. That's the context. And then Daniel drops the hammer. You knew all this. Of course he knew it. He was Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. His mother was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. Even if he wasn't alive when it happened, he would have heard the family stories. Of course he knew it. But Daniel says, but you did not humble your heart before the Lord. You were warned by the example of your grandfather. But instead, you exalted yourself against the Lord, verse 23. Not not just vaguely, not just generally exalting himself against the Lord, but very specifically, when you used God's temple vessels that were made for his worship, you used them for your party. And then praise the gods of gold and silver out of which those vessels were made. Proof itself Those gods cannot hear your praise. And you didn't praise the God who not only hears your boasting, but who holds your life in his hands. Belshazzar holding his God in his hands, utterly unaware that it is the Lord himself who holds Belshazzar in his hand. Irony is rich. Nebuchadnezzar was reduced to a senseless beast. Belshazzar was always a senseless man, deaf and blind to the warning that he'd been given. And now the sentence has been passed, inscribed by yet another hand, the hand of God on the wall of his palace. Friends, at this moment, Daniel is not so much a prophet as he is a wise man, the wise man, 
because of the Spirit of God is upon him. And just like Joseph, and just like Solomon, Daniel is pointing us forward to the only wise God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just have the Spirit. Mark chapter 1, verse 10 tells us that he was filled with the Spirit. And in wisdom, Jesus spent his life teaching us how to live as truly human, in right relationship with God, not debasing ourselves by worshiping idols, but actually ennobling ourselves by giving our worship and our praise to the Lord. The crowds who heard Jesus and his words were amazed at his teaching. Because Mark 1, chapter 1, verse 27 tells us, Jesus taught with authority, unlike the religious teachers of his day. The message that Jesus brought as the wise Son of God is a message of good news. But friends, that message is also a warning. Mark records Jesus' first sermon. In Mark chapter 1, again, Jesus began to preach saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent, therefore, and believe the good news. The good news is that the king has come to make a way for prideful, idolatrous, rebellious people like you and I to be in a right relationship with God. He's made a way for that to happen. And that way is through faith in his shed blood on our behalf. On the cross, Jesus died for us, the creator for the creature, the king for the subject. The greater served the lesser so that the lesser, that would be us, might once again know the joy of serving the greater. Friends, this is the good news of the gospel. This is is the hope of the gospel, that, that, that we can actually be lifted out of our debased state and restored to the honor and glory of being creatures made in the image of God in right relationship with our creator, knowing him and enjoying him fully. This is the good news of the gospel, and we know that it is true because Jesus got up from the dead clothed with a resurrection body that will be like our bodies for all who put their faith in him. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And the message of his cross, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, is both the wisdom and the power of God to forgive sinners and reconcile sinners like us. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, This is what we want you to know. This is what we want you to believe, that God in his wisdom humbled himself to serve you. Do not in your folly reject him. No, instead turn to him. Put your faith in him that he might lift you up. But friends, the cross is not only a message of good news, It stands as a warning. The cross of Jesus Christ 
Paul tells us, is a demonstration of the righteousness of God against sin and against sinners. That's what he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. A demonstration of the righteousness of God. The cross is a display of the holiness of God and the justice of God. Because on the cross, God gave sin what sin deserves. Our our pride is not something to be winked at. It's not something that God can simply overlook and sweep under the carpet. No, it is an affront to his majesty and to his glory. God would cease to be God if he did not respond to the wickedness of our pride with a righteous judgment. Friends, this is what the cross represents. It is a down payment on judgment day. It is a preview of the sentence that waits, awaits every proud heart. It is, a, it is a warning sign. It is flashing in the darkness of this world so that we might see the warning and repent, turn around, change our mind and change our direction and instead believe and so be saved from the judgment that is to come. Friend, what warnings has God sent into your life already? Maybe it's the death of a friend. Maybe it's a reminder of your own mortality because of a health scare. Maybe it's just the suffering that seems to plague your steps. Maybe it's just the inescapable sense that you have that, yeah, we do live in a moral universe. I mean, isn't that why people talk about karma? A sense that there is some justice in this world? Hmm. What is that trying to tell us? Do not ignore the warnings that God is sending into your life. That leads, finally, to the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Look at verse 25. This is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene means that God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel means that you've been weighed on the balance and found deficient. Perez means that your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave an order, and they clothed Daniel in purple, placed a gold chain around his neck, and issued a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. These words, many, many, tekel, parsin, would have been familiar to everybody there. They could all read them. The question wasn't, what are the words? The question is what they mean. They, they, were, they were measurements of weight for precious metals, amina, a shekel, and a, a half, a portion of amina. We might think of it as a pound, an ounce, and half a pound. But the interpretation of the words involves a, a wordplay because each of those nouns sounds like a verb, to be numbered, to be weighed 
to be divided. The king who praised the gods of gold and silver was being weighed on the scale of God's justice like so much precious metal. And he's come up short. And judgment is rendered. His kingdom is divided, taken from him, given to the Medes and the Persians. And and immediately, we're we're reminded of Nebuchadnezzar's dream back in chapter 2. We were told back then that the the head of gold, the, the, the Babylonian empire, was going to be succeeded by a chest and arms of silver, the empire of the Medes and Persians. And indeed, it happened that night. That night was the last night of the Babylonian empire. It happened immediately. Belshazzar had no time to prepare. He had no chance to get ready. Herodotus actually describes it for us. While the king was partying with his nobles, Herodotus tells us all about the party. While the king was partying on this great religious holiday, confident that the walls and the river were going to keep the Persians at bay, Darius had actually sent part of his army upstream and diverted the river, allowing his troops to ford the Euphrates and enter the city from both directions through the sluice gates that had previously been filled with water. To the very end, Belshazzar was senseless. He heard the judgment. He he heard Daniel say, I don't want your reward, but he just carries on. Goes ahead, rewarding him with riches and honor and power, none of which he actually had to give. Friend, it is God who will evaluate our lives. It is God who will weigh our lives. And his judgment will be perfect. Our own assessment of our lives will be worthless on that day. His will be the only assessment that matters. And I'm here to tell you, here's what his assessment already is. Our lives, like Belshazzar's, have been found deficient. They've been found wanting and are worthy of judgment. But the Lord has made another assessment because God assessed the worth of Jesus Christ's life the worth of his shed blood. And God has declared it incalculable, sufficient and more than sufficient for all who put their faith in him. This is what the resurrection is all about. Jesus could not stay dead. Sin had no hold on him, for his was the power of an indestructible life. Hebrews tells us. And and therefore, Christian, this is God's assessment of you. You are assessed, you are justified, not in yourself, but in Christ. This is why that song we, we sang earlier talked about us being bound in Christ. It's his virtues that matter, not yours. 
It's his perfection that matters, not yours. You, Christian, are justified in him fully, finally, completely. The judgment has already happened. Judgment day has no hold on you. It should have hold no fear for you because the judgment has already been passed on you. In Christ, you are declared not guilty. In Christ, you are declared holy and beloved. Christians, stop walking around this week like God is up there evaluating you. Look, looking at you kind of disappointed because you keep failing to live up to his assessment. That is not the way God sees you. There is no God in heaven that is other than, that is unlike Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ sees when he sees you is his beloved that he died for to justify and make holy. This is what God sees. Remember that this week. But if you're not a Christian, know for certain that Judgment Day is coming. We've been warned. And if we ignore the warning, we will not escape the judgment. Do not count on there being time to prepare. He will come suddenly when you don't expect it. Which means today, right now, is the day to hear the warning. Do not be senseless. Do not tune out the warning because the warning is given in love. Today is the day to heed the warning and to be saved. Would you pray with me? Take a moment and consider what it would mean for you to heed the warnings that God has sent into your life. And just ask God for the grace to respond to that warning. Lord God, you have spoken in great love warnings to your people. You've spoken through the prophets. You even now speak through the scriptures. But most of all, you've spoken to us through Jesus. We pray that we would not be senseless. We pray that we would recognize that it is you who holds us in your hands, and not the other way around. We pray that you would give us ears to hear the word of warning and to hear those words as words of love. And so to run to them, 
and to find safety in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And now, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.